Okay, good morning everyone. It's great to be with you today. If you've all had a restful and blessed Easter weekend, um, you know, what a joy. What a joy to sing these songs together today. And um, yeah, it's actually struck just what a good job these, these particular songs do actually just taking you through the events. Um, and uh, just reminding us of some of these details and some of them just especially sweet, precious details. Um, I trust we'll be blessed as we think about that some more today during this sermon. So Christianity is a faith rooted and grounded in history. Rooted and grounded in history. It is historical. Okay, we believe what we believe because of things that actually happened. And the one truth that Christianity particularly hinges on, more than anything else, is the resurrection. You may have heard of people who would call themselves Christians, who say that they believe Jesus existed and they love his teachings and they try to live according to his teachings, but they do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible, however, has no room for that sort of Christianity. It has no room for half-hearted, non-supernatural Christianity. The Bible is unashamed and emphatic in its claims about Jesus' virgin birth, his miracles, his deity or his godness, and the biggest miracle that proves all the others, his resurrection from the dead. And the Bible is very clear that it is an all or nothing package, that Christianity is only worth it if all of this is true. Hear what the Apostle Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 to 19. He says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, and if in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. We are of all people most to be pitied. It doesn't sound like Paul thinks it's worth it if Jesus is just a good moral teacher and we just try and be nicer people because of the nice person Jesus was. Not at all. There's no resurrection. Your faith is futile. In other words, it is powerless. It is pointless. Christians who have died are still dead. And you still have the problem of your sins. Your sins are still undealt with. You have no hope. Our situation is pitiful. So here's what I want us to do today. This will be an unusual sermon in that it won't be a typical expositional sermon where we camp in one passage and unpack that one passage through the sermon. 
What I'm going to do instead is to look briefly. I'm going to try and uh, overview Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, looking at the different gospel accounts, looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Um, I'm not going to be able to hit on every detail, but I'm going to look, look at what the biblical accounts and, and answer the question, first of all, what does the Bible say happened? Okay. Then secondly, we're going to think about how do we know that what the Bible says happened really did happen? And then lastly, we'll look at why it makes a difference. Okay. Now for some of you, this may be new. I don't want to assume that everybody knows the biblical accounts of what happened. So uh, I, I, want to be, I, I, want, I want to go and just simply look at what it says. And for those of you where, where that would not be new, I still trust that this will be uh, a good refresher for you and an encouragement to you as we look at just the wonderful account of what our Savior has done for us. And I want this to also strengthen us, strengthen all of us, um, not just as we are refreshed and encouraged by these truths, but as we realize that our faith really is um, well documented. It is, and it is, it is on solid ground. So even as you interact with others and share the gospel with others, I hope that there's some 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 uh, arguments you can take away from the sermon today in terms of helping people to see that our accounts, that the accounts that we base our faith on, are not. Um, uh, well, they're not fluffy. Uh, it's not just wishful thinking. It's, it's well-grounded in such a way that even somebody who doesn't believe in the supernaturalness of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible, even somebody just looking at the Bible as an historical document would have to take these accounts very seriously and reckon with them very seriously. Okay. So let's look, first of all, what the Bible said happened. Jesus' public ministry lasted about three or three and a half years. Okay? And we've, you know, we, everybody says Jesus preached love, and he certainly did. But Jesus preached a lot more than love. Jesus uh, gathered and trained his disciples, he did many miracles. Healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, giving the crippled the ability to walk, casting out demons, multiplying food to feed thousands, even raising the dead. Okay. He preached boldly and unashamedly, and he upset many of the religious leaders of the day as he did so. Jesus was clear in his claims that he had the authority to forgive sins, that he was the Son of God, and that he was the promised Messiah come to rescue his people. He ruffled a lot of feathers with these claims. The leaders of the Pharisees, the leaders of the Sadducees, different sects uh, of, of, of Jewish leaders, conspired the, that normally didn't get along very well with each other. Okay? Jesus ruffled their feathers, both their feathers, well enough that they actually conspired together, worked together, to get rid of him. 
He was, he was popular enough, though, with many of the common people who loved his miracles and were fascinated by his teaching. Indeed, many people who believed his teaching, believed that he was the Messiah, that if these religious leaders were to get rid of Jesus, they had to find a time and a place where he was basically alone, where the crowds wouldn't see them, right? Where they could bring in some troops and, and just uh, overpower the small group that's there and take Jesus away. And that's where Judas came in. Okay? So for 30 pieces of silver, Judas told the Jew- Jewish leaders where and when they could find Jesus. Okay? And there, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they came to find him. During that night after his arrest, Jesus was bounced around between different authorities, right? Roman authorities, Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, leaders, um, bounced around between different authorities, Herod, Pilate, the Sanhedrin. Um, and through the night, these leaders are just pushing and pushing and pushing. The Jewish leaders uh, are pushing and pushing and pushing, basically, to get things to the point where the Romans will crucify Jesus for them. Okay? Um, there's multiple examples that, that, that can be raised in terms of how this was done in an unlawful way, uh, in terms of basically, uh, uh, essentially, bribery. Um, because at the end of it all, right, Pilate ends up sentencing Jesus to death for one reason only. Because the Jewish leaders have incited the crowds to such a point that they realize there's going to be a riot on our hands if we don't do something about this. Okay? So for completely unlawful reasons to keep the peace, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. But before that, he's mocked and he's beaten. The particular argument the Jewish leaders were we're saying was that we're, we're making was first of all they're saying we want this man dead because his teaching has blasphemed our God. He says he can forgive sins. He says he's the Son of God. He's made himself equal to our God. We want you to kill him because of that. And on uh, and why should you care about this, Roman authorities? You should care about this because he says he's the king. And there's no king but Caesar, right? There's no king but Caesar. You're the one ruling us. And, and if you allow this man to get away with claiming to be king, people are going to follow him and not follow Caesar. So what do they do? Okay. The, the authorities realize this. There's no, there's no real teeth to this argument. Jesus isn't actually trying to uh, raise an army and, and, and take over. Um, in, in some sort of militaristic way. Um, but they, they take these claims that have been made and they, they mock Jesus. And they actually mock the Jewish people as well, or try to. So what they do, Matthew 26 tells us, they spat in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to, to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So if you really are this Messiah, 
then you should be able to see who's hitting you, even if they're hitting you from behind or when you're not looking, right? Prophesy to us. Matthew 27 tells us, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, right, the color of royalty, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand like a scepter. Okay? And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Okay? Now for those of us, of course, who know who Jesus really is, this is sobering. Right? Um, and it's ironic. They're mocking him because they don't think he's a king at all. And of course he is king of kings. They feigned loyalty and honor to the king. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was also scourged or flogged, depending on your Bible translation. And what this is essentially is it's being whipped with a whip with horrible, basically long strands of leather. And at the end of the long strands of leather are sharp pieces of bone or, or, or metal. And uh, we sang about it even in one of the, the songs, right? When we said that Jesus was torn. He's torn because as he's whipped with, uh, with this type of whip, the idea is that these sharp pieces of, of bone or metal will actually lodge themselves in the flesh. And as the whip is pulled back, pieces of, of, of flesh are actually torn and ripped away. Okay, So, incredible welts, uh, incredible bleeding, loss of blood. Um, and Jesus was very thoroughly scourged and flogged. It seems like what Pilate was basically trying to do was not just give him a typical punishment, but whip him very badly in the hopes that the, that the people would then be satisfied. Look, I've punished him already. Let's just let this guy go. But that wouldn't happen. The crowds just kept insisting, crucify him, crucify him. Even to the point where when Pilate gave them the choice of saying, okay, who, who, should, who should I release and not crucify? This innocent man or this guilty man? Right? And they said, no, free Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Jesus was then made to carry the crossbeam of his cross to an area called Golgotha. Okay? Golgotha, a site just a few hundred meters outside the city, pretty much on a main road. The idea with crucifixion, the way the Romans used this, was it was a way of making very clear to those people they were ruling that they were in charge. They were in charge, and those who opposed them were punished, and punished badly. Crucifixion was intended to be shameful, it was intended to be painful. It was intended to be something that people avoided at all costs. Okay? And so you can imagine if you basically just, you're an outside traveler, you're arriving at the city, and as you arrive at the city, just a few hundred meters before the city, it would be this normal thing for a few crosses 
to be lined up, right? And perhaps the crosses are empty at the particular time, but maybe there's even just still dead people hanging on these crosses or people currently suffering and dying on these crosses. And you're reminded as you walk into the city, let me not cross Rome. Let me respect their authority. So he carries this crossbeam, but because he's so weakened by the scourging, by the flogging, right? Even though it's just a few hundred meters that he's expected to carry this crossbeam, uh, Jesus isn't able to do it. And they, they grab hold of a man just passing by, Simon of Cyrene, and they insist, the soldiers insist that he carries the crossbeam for Jesus. Once he arrives at Golgotha, that crossbeam is attached to uh, a vertical beam. Okay. And then while that's down on the ground, Jesus was nailed to the cross. Okay. We often think of him being, him being nailed through, through the palms of his hands. More likely it would have been through the wrists just because the bones there are thicker and would, would hold the weight of a man better. And then his feet, one on top of the other, again with um, a, 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 a spike, a big giant nail, probably also again through the ankles rather than um, top of the feet like we would normally uh, or often people picture it. Um, and the cross is then lifted into place, drops down into the hole, and there's this horrible jarring movement uh, as that happens, and then uh, the person being crucified is, is, is left to hang, right? The Bible tells us there were three hours of darkness in the middle of the day while Jesus was on the cross, and an unusual darkness is not even explained in the text in terms of how it happened. And there's lots of theories about what, what it might have been. Maybe it was a solar eclipse. Maybe there was some sort of, uh, of, of severe dust storm as they can be in, in, in the Middle East at times. It just blocked out the light. But whatever it was, it was clear that it was from God. Okay, And there was powerful symbolic meaning behind it as well. God's judgment. As Jesus hung on the cross dying, God made everything dark. And it definitely shook several people up. Mark tells us, and at the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m., so as this darkness is, is coming to an end, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He says, it is finished. He breathes his last breath and dies. Now, when someone is crucified, they basically die of suffocation. So, you're not able to breathe if your arms are out like this and your, the weight of your body is, is essentially pulling your arms higher and higher, right? 
you're not able to to breathe. I, I don't know the mechanics of it too well, but but um, but well, if <laughs> if we held you up like that, you'd you'd realize it very quickly, right? Because um, as as um, the, something to do with the diaphragm and just just the fact that your arms have to be have to be lower lower for you to be able to 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 actually take take a proper breath in and then exhale again. Okay, so the whole way that crucifixion worked was that they wanted it to be long, they wanted it to be painful. They didn't want to kill you as quickly as possible. So that's why the foot, the feet were actually nailed to the cross as well. And sometimes with a, a bit of a, an angled uh, kind of like platform or ledge for the feet to actually be able to push up. Okay, because the mindset is okay. I can't breathe like this, uh, but but now my my legs are bent, and and even though it's painful to push down on that nail, if I do push down on that nail, I can lift my body up just enough that I can, and then relax again, right? And so, uh, eventually you get to the point where just through the sheer pain, sheer weakness, um, you just can't keep that up. And you can't breathe well enough and you die. And in Jesus' situation, um, with the scourging that he'd had, all the blood loss, all the weakness he had, um, he died sooner than is typical on the cross. Um, he died around 3 p.m., uh, as, as, as we already mentioned, right? Right around 3 p.m. As Jesus died, the Bible tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. There was an earthquake, and the, and the, and the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And we talked about this in a message a few weeks ago, but there's incredible symbolic significance to this because man's biggest problem throughout history since the Garden of Eden has been the fact that our sin separates us from God, that we can't go into the presence of God because of our sinfulness, because of our rebellion against Him. And now that Jesus has died to pay for that rebellion, has died to pay for our sins, to take the penalty that our sins deserve, as he dies, this curtain in the temple that has kept worshippers separate from the presence of God, from the most holy place, it tears into. It is now possible for us to go right into the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. All of this takes place on Friday, Good Friday. And Saturday, of course, was the Jewish Sabbath, their holy day when they were supposed to rest from all work and just focus themselves entirely on worship. And on top of that, this is also the Passover week. So this is a particularly special Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders go to Pilate, to the governor, and they say, please, um, can we speed this along so that we can get these people off the cross for our, our holy day tomorrow. We don't want these people up on the cross 
uh, for the Holy Day tomorrow. And the Romans had a way of speeding up the crucifixion. I mentioned earlier that typically they wanted it to, to last longer. Um, but the way that they could speed it up is they would, they would basically um, take, you know, take like a long club, perhaps the back of their spears or something like that, and they would whack uh, the legs of the men on the cross and break their legs. Okay, And when their legs are broken, now they can't push up anymore. So they just hang down and the suffocation comes a lot quicker because they're not able, able to breathe. Okay. And so the Bible tells us that they went, first of all, um, well, okay, John 19, I'll read. John 19, 32. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the... So there were two other men being crucified with Jesus. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. Okay? So they see that he's already dead, but then just to double check, they, they stab him with the spear just kind of underneath the ribs and, and, and up high into his torso. And as he pulls out the spear, there's this mixture of, 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 of blood and water. There's different theories about exactly what might have happened here, but the bottom line is this, is that this... Um, it's like the blood is already separating, okay? And whether and, and there's there's water buildup in his lungs, which proves he's already dead. Okay. This proves he's already dead. So after that, Luke tells us there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. Oh sorry, before I go on to that, this some of these details are amazing. Because there's prophetic psalms that talk about this. And it talks about how not one of his bones were broken. Okay, So if Jesus was, had been dying at the same rate as the other guys on the cross, if he'd, just been not, if he'd just not quite died yet, they would have broken his legs. Um, so all these little details even just tie in with, 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 with meeting... Um, uh, these prophetic details. Uh, and it also didn't mention that they were, uh, some of the soldiers were casting lots for his clothing. That had been prophesied. So all sorts of little details. So unfortunately, I'm not able to get into everything here. Um, but, okay. Um, so there was, a, uh, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. So he was one of the Sanhedrin, uh, one of the Sanhedrin leaders. A good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action with Jesus. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was coming. 
the woman who had come with him from Galilee, the woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee, uh, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. So basically, it wasn't enough time. Uh, it seems what happened is, is they began the process of, of the, the typical cultural process of preparing the body for burial. But then Sabbath officially begins at sundown on a Friday. So there wasn't enough time to finish the process completely. Um, so these ladies, uh, they returned and pre- prepared spices and ointments. And then the mindset was, okay, after the Sabbath, we'll come back on Sunday morning and we'll finish, uh, finish this job. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Then what we see is that the Jewish leaders go again to, to Pilate and they say, look, um, we want this tomb where he's been buried, we want it to be thoroughly sealed and we want it to be guarded because one of the things that, that this man said was that if he, that if he died, he was going to rise from the dead. Okay, So we don't want his followers to come and steal the body and then say uh, that he'd actually been resurrected. So Roman guards sealed the tomb and guarded it. And then comes Sunday morning, Mark 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb, right? There's this huge, big, giant stone in front of the tomb. And the, these, these guards have even sealed it thoroughly. And, and we're just a, a couple ladies. How are we going to do this? And they were saying to one another, oh, sorry, verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So these ladies go, they tell the disciples and they come back and the disciples see the empty tomb themselves and and they leave. Okay, um, But Mary Magdalene stays behind. And, you know, sometimes the, the mindset with this is that Jesus' followers were just, um, they were eager to be gullible, <laughs> so to speak, you know. They were, uh, they, they were eager to, to just believe anything uh, about Jesus' res- resurrection. Um, but what we see here instead with Mary Magdalene is she's very confused. She loved Jesus. She'd followed him from early in his ministry. Um, she's, she just wants to pray, pay proper respect uh, with his body, take care of his body properly. So she's come. Uh, she, this, this man told her, no, he's not here. Uh, um, so I guess it's an angel, but she doesn't seem to realize that. She goes, she gets the disciples, she comes back, 
he's still not here and she's distraught, right? So she says in, in um, uh, the book of John, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels now in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she says to him, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. So the way she's still thinking is not Jesus has been raised, but I'm here at the tomb. Where is he? Where, where have they put his body? Um, and uh, having said this, she, um, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was him. So we know from these accounts that we'll see that Jesus He's, in a, he's got a resurrected body. He's able now to just uh, enter a room without having to go through the door. Um, there's, there's a few things about him that are different, and yet it's also still undeniably him. Uh, we'll, and we'll see some of those details as we keep going here. Um, so I don't know why she didn't recognize him at first. Maybe she's, uh, maybe it's some of these these, these small differences with with the resurrected, glorified body. Uh, maybe it's uh, at least partly because she's just sobbing and, and, and her eyes are filled with tears and she's just emotional and she's not expecting to see Jesus standing up and talking to her. Um, you know, so, but she doesn't recognize him in first. And in, sec- in fact, it says there, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell you, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. <laughs> so this is just one of those cool, cool moments where you realize, like, you know, she's just, she's so confused. Nothing's connecting for her. And then there's just this moment where, where Jesus just says her name. But she knows the way Jesus says her name. And just suddenly it clicks. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Suddenly she realizes, it's you. It's you. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. So I don't know. Maybe she's like, as she says, she just gives him the biggest hug. He's like, well, hang on. Don't, don't, don't hold on too tightly. I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And from this point onwards, we see multiple other appearances that Jesus makes to his followers. Um, okay, so there's an, one situation where he appears to a few other women. There's two people on the road to Emmaus. He appears to Peter individually. He appears to ten disciples in the upper room. On another occasion, he appears to 11 disciples in the upper room. So this time, first time Thomas is not there. 
he hears that, that they saw Jesus and he says, uh, you know, I, I wish this was true, but I'm not going to believe unless I can actually touch him, unless I can actually see his wounds. So the next time Jesus appears, Thomas is there, and then Jesus says to him, come here, <laughs> let me show you my wounds, you know, in my wrist, in my side, where, this, where that spear pierced me. And he takes his hands and he actually lets Thomas actually touch him, feel him, right? So as we said, this is, this is not just a ghost. This is a physical being. It's, it's, it, there's, there's some differences uh, from our unglorified body. And yet, it's still, I mean, it's still his body. It's, the scars are there. The wound, the, the, the uh, not, they're not open wounds, they're closed wounds. But the, 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 at least the signs of the wounds uh, are, are there. Um, then he appears to seven disciples fishing. And this is also just a sweet, sweet moment because they're not catching anything. <laughs> and they don't first recognize him on the shore. And what does Jesus do? He reminds them of a previous miracle when he first met them. And he tells them, throw the net on the other side. Can you imagine, can you imagine that situation? You're in the boat. And just some random guy from shore. And then when he tells you to throw it on the other side, you're like, ah, <laughs> I, I, I remember. I know, I know why you're telling me to do that. And, and of course, they get a, a huge catch again. But it's not just about that. It's, a, it's, it's about um, who he is and, and Jesus reminding them of that previous memory when you first met them. And then they have a, a fish breakfast on the shore. He appears to 11 disciples on a mountain. He appears to more than 500 people on one occasion. He appears to Jesus's brother, James, to his own brother, James. And you got to remember that the gospels actually show us that Jesus's siblings did not believe in him before his death. Okay. And James goes on to become a key leader in the Jerusalem church. And then, of course, he appears to his disciples at his actual ascension. And all these appearances happen within, within a 40-day period, okay, after uh, that first Easter Sunday. And then there's one more. Several years later, right, when he appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul uh, goes from Jesus hating to just being somebody who lives an all-out radical life for Christ. So that's what the Bible tells us happened. Now, how do we know that it actually did happen? So now, of course, as people who trust the Bible, who believe that the Bible is written by God himself, inspired by God, we, we trust the Bible. Okay, we trust the Bible. But if we're trying to interact with people who are skeptical about the Bible and who just want to view the Bible as historical documents, right? how do we engage with them about these accounts? Um, well, first of all, we can say that Jesus did really die. He genuinely died. Sometimes people would like to say that, no, okay, maybe, you know, maybe there was some... 
some scheme to get him off the cross before he was actually died, before he actually died. Um, there's some theories about somebody dying, you know, pretending to be him and dying. Um, but none of these things hold any water. Uh, what we see here is it's a very, very public execution. That's the very nature of crucifixion. It's in a public place, people passing by, there's huge crowds watching on, um, certainly with the commitment that the Jewish leaders had to kill him, they would have made very sure that they had the right man. Um, the executioners, they do this for a living. They crucify people for a living. Um, and they know what they're doing, right? And, he, and so the soldier knows how to check that this man is dead. Uh, and, and he knows how to make sure that uh, he doesn't actually have to break his legs. Uh, there's another section of the Gospels I didn't read actually where it's emphasized that when Joseph of Arimathea went to ask for permission to take the body, that Pilate double checks with the centurion who's in charge of the execution and, and double checks with him, gets clarity from him that Jesus is in fact dead before he allows him to be taken down. Any theory that he was still alive and was essentially buried alive in the tomb is really not credible. Think, think about what we've seen about how he was whipped and scourged, um, how he wasn't even able to carry his crossbeam to the crucifixion site, and then he hangs on the cross for a whole day, and now people want to maybe suggest that, no, or maybe if he was then, his wounds are untreated and he's left in the tomb for a full day and two nights, that then he could come out of the tomb on Sunday morning like a new man, right, with everything fine. Um, and, and it just doesn't hold up. Okay, it doesn't hold up. Secondly, he really was buried, okay? The location of this tomb was well known. All the Gospels emphasize Joseph of Arimathea, and it's a very public thing. Not only is, is he this well-known uh, figure as a leader in the Sanhedrin, but he has to go and ask permission from Pilate. Uh, there's an official guard set at the tomb. There's no kind of possibility of like, well, maybe Jesus was actually buried somewhere else. Everybody knows exactly where he was buried. The tomb really was empty on Sunday morning. If the tomb the woman or the disciples went to was wrong, or they'd made up some story about it, it actually being empty, then because everybody knew where the tomb was, all they had to do to bring an end to the story was go to the tomb. Okay, All they had to do was go to the tomb and produce the body, and then all the hype comes to an end. Um, but the religious leaders were not able to do that because there was no body. Okay? There was no body. Um, in fact, even the story that we see that the religious leaders promoted, right? the religious leaders uh, promoted a story that the disciples had come uh, and had stolen Jesus, stolen his body overnight. Okay? Um, even the fact that, 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 that the Jewish leaders did that 
proves that they had to do that. Right? There was no body. There was no body for them to produce. And so, okay, look, no, look, he is truly dead. Here's, here's the evidence. Um, so we'll talk a, a little bit about that particular argument, though, uh, that the disciples had stolen his body. Uh, we'll talk about that a little, a little later. Within seven weeks of Jesus' death, the, the disciples were actively preaching about his resurrection. Just seven weeks. Okay, so my point with this is just that, again, uh, we see from, from the example with the, with, with the Apostle Paul when he was still anti-Christian, we see how, how violently, how passionately uh, the Jewish leaders were, um, were, were against Christianity. And so now just seven weeks after Jesus' death, as this is being preached, Again, if it didn't, if, if the tomb wasn't really empty, all the Jewish leaders had to do was produce the body, and and all of this could be seen to be empty, and 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 they they could have succeeded in crushing Christianity at its beginning, but they weren't able to do it. He definitely died on the Friday, and on that Sunday, his dead body was not where it had been left. It was not in the tomb that had been sealed and guarded. Okay. Number four, he really rose from the dead. Now, there's a number of things that point to this. Um, one, one that's quite interesting is that all the Gospels show us that women were the first eyewitnesses. The women were the first people to find the empty tomb. And what I mean by this is just that in the, in, in the culture of the day, women were not respected as credible witnesses. Okay? Um, so the point being, if somebody is going to make up a story where they're trying to prove something to you, right? they're not going to start off by going like, okay, and uh, you know, maybe if I take an example from today, it's like, and some three-year-olds saw what happened, right? Like, no, they're going to be like, are going to try and try and go with an argument where you're like, okay, that's a credible witness, okay? Um, but the Gospels talk about what really happened. It's not a fabricated story. It's just the truth. The first people to find the empty tomb were women. There's the sheer number of eyewitnesses. When we, when historians are trying to validate. Uh, whether something historical is trustworthy. One of the things they're looking at is how many sources are there? How many eyewitnesses are there? Um, another thing they're trying to con- consider is, okay, if there's a record made of this thing, um, how close was it to the actual event? Was this a few days later? Is it a few years later? Um, and in both cases... Uh, the this is is you know meets historical criteria very very well. Um, there's there's the sheer number of eyewitnesses, the diversity of circumstances. Right, Jesus appeared to individuals. He appeared to groups. He actually sat with people and, and ate food. Uh, Thomas actually put his hands in the wounds. Um, not only was Jesus 
there, but he was definitely a body and not just a spirit, right? Uh, he was a genuine, genuine resurrected Jesus, uh, tangible, physical. Um, uh, let me see here. We also see that the written record we have, um, the written record we have was written down, okay, at a time when multiple eyewitness could have, eyewitnesses could have been spoken to. Okay. You can go find Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea if you want to talk to him directly and hear him say, yes, Jesus was buried in my tomb. Okay. You can go find these people uh, who, who actually witnessed Jesus um, firsthand. Okay. And the point being that, that if these written accounts, if somebody wanted to discredit them, they could have discredited them if this was just purely made up. One thing that's very, very cool to think about is the radical change in people. Okay, The radical change in, in, in a number of people. Cowering, fearful disciples become bold. Right? You see Peter who denied Jesus three times. And why did he deny him three times? He denied him three times because he realized that if he was identified as someone who followed Jesus, he could also get into trouble, right? Jesus is on trial. He's, he's, he might be crucified. So Peter's there trying to watch on, see what's going on, but he doesn't want people to identify him as a follower of Jesus. Um, most of the other disciples are nowhere to be found. They've fled completely. And then you see here in the book of Acts, Peter's preaching, Acts 2, Men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Okay. Peter's now bold. And we see, we see through Peter's life, he's thrown in prison multiple times. He's, he's, he's beaten. He, he has to go through much suffering. All the, 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 the leaders had to. In fact, Many of them ended up dying for their faith. Okay? Um, now, here's the thing. I remember sharing, trying to share the gospel with a friend of mine who had grown up Christian and then had decided that he didn't believe in it anymore. And I remember his pushback was he's like, yeah, but, you know, all around the world, people are willing to die for beliefs. Okay? Uh, so it's like the, the fact that people are willing to die doesn't convince me of anything. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Me being willing to die for Christ is not in the same category as Peter being willing to die for Christ. Okay? And here's why. If Peter was willing to die for Christ, Peter would have known 
100% based on fact whether or not Jesus really had raised from the dead. Okay? It wouldn't have just been faith. He would have known beyond an absolute shadow of a doubt whether or not this thing was true. And he was willing to die for Christ. Okay? And that's why this argument that, that, that the Jewish leaders put forward of like, no, just tell everyone that the disciples stole the body. It doesn't end up being a compelling argument because of how much the disciples were willing to suffer and sacrifice. They're not going to suffer and sacrifice uh, when, if, if in the back of their minds they know Jesus never actually rose from the dead. We stole the body. You're not going to die for that. Okay? Does that make sense? Right? Think also now about this. Jesus' brother James, who didn't believe in him before the death. Right? He grows up with Jesus. And Jesus is this goody, goody two-shoes brother. Right? Um, there's, a, there's a comedian uh, in the States uh, who, who um, Michael Jr. who does this whole uh, yeah joke thing about he's like imagine being being James you know and growing up and having your parents be like James why can't you be more like Jesus you know right um, difficult scenario as a brother right but now think about this though James he definitely knows whether this resurrected person, so, so-called resurrected person, really is his brother, really is resurrected. Okay? And if he had been pushing aside this idea of Jesus as Messiah, not wanting to believe that during Jesus' life, what would it take for him to now be fully convinced that my brother really is the Messiah? And to be willing, again, to suffer and die for that. It's not, this is not a scenario where these guys, if they, if they went along with, with, with some sort of a scheme, with some sort of fake story, they were getting rich quick. That's not what was happening. Think about Paul. Paul had been rising in the ranks. Paul was going to be someone who, who just like a Joseph of Arimathea, was, would have been able to be like, yeah, here's my fancy tomb cut out of the rock, right? Uh, which was a, a very expensive tomb that only the wealthiest people would have had. And been like, oh, I don't need you, you can use that one. I'll get another one made at a later stage, right? That's, that's, that's the world Paul's in. He's, he's a respected Jewish leader rising in the ranks, and then he, 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 he goes from that situation to, to being willing to be imprisoned, stoned, beaten, shipwrecked. All the sufferings we see him enduring for a lifetime because he's that convinced that the Jesus he met on the way to Damascus really was the resurrected Lord. Okay. Why does all this matter? It all matters because Jesus really is who he said he is. 
He really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God. He really did do what he said he would do when he spoke of rising from the dead. And if he can be trusted in, in, and he can really be trusted in all his promises, even those that seem the most unlikely. Jesus' death really did pay for sins. Think about this as an analogy, right? There's something you need to pay for, and you've got your credit card, your, your, your debit card, right? And, um, yeah, debit card. And uh, you try and pay for this thing, uh, and you've got confidence in your card, but then they, they tell you, oh, no, it didn't work. They turn around the card machine, and it says they're insufficient funds, right? If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, it's like that scenario, insufficient funds. You tried to pay for this, but you actually didn't have what was required. But when Jesus is raised from the dead, there's the proof. The, the necessary funds were there to pay the price for our sins and more, right? Death can't hold on to him because he doesn't owe death anything. Jesus rose and so will we who are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, right? We saw, um, we saw Paul's argument that if the resurrection wasn't real, then our faith is futile. But he goes on later in the chapter and he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to him. We can and should have hope. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. But he has been raised. So 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Be bold. Be confident. Be steady. What you believe is true. It is not just wishful thinking. It is true. And work hard for this truth. Be willing, just as the disciples were, just as Jesus' brother was, to suffer and sacrifice for this truth, for defending it, for spreading it. Because it really is the good news. It really is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. So um, we're going to take communion for the first time as a church plant today, and uh, I'm very excited about that. Um, so just to be clear on, on how this should work, Jesus instituted this for his followers the night before he died. 
Okay. And he's told us that we must do this in remembrance of him. The cup we drink is symbolic of the blood that he shed for us. The blood he shed to pay the price for our sins. The bread that we eat is symbolic of of his body given for us to provide for us, to provide what we need in order to uh, be seen as righteous and counted as righteous in the eyes of God. And because of that symbolism, um, that powerful symbolism, right? This This is about Jesus dying for his people. And it's about us as we, as we take it and partake of it, it's about us believing that. It's about us um, embracing that and saying, that's mine. He did that for me. Okay. And so as a result, it's, it's really important that you only do this if you have put your faith in Jesus. And this isn't just, you know, you, you can come to church many, many times as someone who's just interested in Christianity. Uh, and that's very fine. Um, but if, if you're just somebody interested in Christianity, uh, you're just somebody who's, who's here to attend, uh, you're welcome. But you shouldn't partake in this communion. This is for those who have embraced what Jesus has done for them. Okay, It's for those who, who are His. And Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of him. And he tells us, told his disciples that we should do this until we do it again in the kingdom. Okay? Because, again, Jesus was foreseeing that he would be raised from the dead. And that a time will come in the new heavens and new earth when we will actually feast with him. We will eat with him and, and enjoy his fellowship, enjoy his company, um, because he's made it possible for us to be raised from the dead too. Okay. So what we're going to do, uh, we'll, uh, I'll pray in a moment here, uh, and then you can just come up, uh, get get a get some get both a cup and some bread there from the basket, and then just return to your seat. And then, um, can I put you on the spot then to pray again at that moment? And then and then we can take it all together. Okay. But let, me, uh, let me say a prayer now. Lord, we're so thankful for what you did for us. And we're thankful for some of the details that you've put into the biblical account that can just... Uh, give us that much more confidence as we share with others uh, about the historicity of these truths of, and, and, and just give us something to, to, to engage with people about and to show that these really are things that, that actually happened, uh, things that can be, be traced, things that, that could have been refuted if they really were refutable but weren't refuted because they actually happened. Jesus, thank you for giving us yourself. Father, thank you for giving us your son. Thank you that he was raised 
and that as he was raised, he defeated death. And that because of that, our faith is not futile. In fact, it is glorious and hopeful and unshakable. Amen. Okay, please come and help yourselves to the bread and the cup.